you have God's word, I'd love for you to turn to Mark chapter number 10 this morning. <clears throat> Mark chapter number 10. If you're willing and able, we'll stand for the reading of God's word out of reverence for it. We'll take a reading of the same portion that we <clears throat> read last week, Mark chapter 10, verse 1 through 12. Um, but again, our, our primary focus this week will be in the same text as last week, verses 6 through 9, as we, I, th- I hope, plumb the depths a little bit further um, into God's original purpose in marriage. And I, I pray that that's what our focus would be, you know. Anytime you deal with topics like these, you know that um, you're preaching to a people who have experienced things, you know, difficult seasons of life, broken relationships, uh, premarital, extramarital things um, have happened, and, and the focus particularly of today's message is not to bring up old feelings about some of those things or to um, cause guilt about um, former lives, but it is simply to, to ask you to Think on marriage now, the purpose of marriage now. You know, Paul encourages men and women to remain as they are. I think that we could take that principle into marriages as we have it now as well. And we may talk about that in the coming sermons. But um, I would ask you that if you're a believer in Christ, you don't inherently get wrapped up in in the former past that's in Christ. Um, It's gone, it's passed away, it's forgiven. Um, so don't um, lie under the condemnation of sins that, that are under the cross, under the blood. Um, that doesn't mean for you who are in sin today that just cast it off. Today, if you're outside of Christ, maybe I am speaking to you. And maybe that should um, unearth some guilt in your heart as you need Christ. So if that's you today, I'm, I'm begging Christ to show you the, the depravity of our own souls your soul, but also the immeasurable grace that you can find in Christ today, and the new heart that he'll give, if you'll come to him by faith and repentance, and the marriage that he can give you in Christ, um, can, can even, I think, abound beyond what Adam and Eve had in a redeemed relationship between a husband and a wife. So I would ask you just to contemplate presently where you are in your marriage as we glean into the great privileges and blessings um, of what marriage should be. So let's read verse 1. Then he arose from there and came to the region of Judea by the other side of the Jordan. The multitudes gathered to him again, and as he was accustomed, he taught them again. The Pharisees came and asked him, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife, testing him? And he answered and said to them, What did Moses command you? They said, Moses permitted a man to write a certificate of divorce and to dismiss her. And Jesus answered and said to them, because of the hardness of your heart, he wrote you this precept. But from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So then they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no man separate. And the house of his disciples also asked him about the same matter. So he said to them, whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her. And if a woman divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. Let's pray one more time. Father, again, we come to you and just praise you for the word of God and the special revelation that we have. Lord, and we just um, beg you to speak to us. God, uh, may we not be a people who leave here um, wondering if God was present with us. But you use your divine word um, by the power of your spirit um, to speak to us heavenly and eternal things, Father, that are 
um, ever-changing our lives. God, I pray that um, you would renew something today in us, that you would transform something today in us, that um, something we would take off as an old man and we would put on the new, that we would take off, um, that I would take off Damon and put on Christ, Father, that you would um, help me to, to, to mortify some, uh, kill something in my life, Father, that is not pleasing to you, but uh, to cultivate, that you would cultivate by your spirit, Father, some grace in my life that, that has not been present in former days um, or in recent days, Lord, but that you would just renew and revive a spirit, Father, that is within me, that you would give us all a new joy, a new peace, a new um, long-suffering, a, a spirit of self-control, and, and a whole other host of graces, Father, that are otherworldly. God, may we say that as we've left this place, we met with Christ, and as a result of it, Father, um, we are different. So, Lord, we know that that only comes through faithfulness to the Word of God, so help us to be faithful in the text. Father, me in, um, in giving it, and, uh, Father, the church in receiving it. Father, let me not um, to, um, land or, or uh, settle upon any idle word, Father. Uh, if there's something that I can say clear and concisely, Father, with fewer words that the power of God uh, might rest upon them, may it be so. Father, may I not just ramble for rambling's sake, and may I not just carry on, Father, um, for, the, for the honor and glory of man, but, Father, for the King of kings and the Lord of lords, what Christ has accomplished. So, Father... Um, help us just to um, honor you, Father, in the text in this moment. We commend this time to you now. Give us strength of mind as we eat at your table. In Jesus' name, amen. You can be seated. Bless you. As I said last week, we, um, we began working through this text. And, um, and just to remind you, the text begins with, um, with, with a new break, a new break in the account. Um, and, and in that break in the account, our Lord and Savior is now moving from um, high and lofty things um, such as his death, burial, and resurrection, the mortification of sin, the killing, the cutting off, the casting away, the salting, the being seasoned with fire, um, the trials, the tribulations that we're going to endure, and he moves to another high and lofty subject. That subject is marriage. Um, it's not one that he had prepared a sermon for. It's not one that he had um, labored hard to teach a Sunday school lesson um, it was something that was just, just innately in him as he, um, <clears throat> of course, is the son of God, but no doubt grew up in, the, in, the, um, in, in Judaistic religion, taught the Old Testament scriptures from a human perspective, but has a divine, um, has a divine perception um, that is otherworldly. Um, and often what happens is, is that um, people come to him, whether it's disciples or Pharisees, and offer and ask him questions um, uh, for different reasons, and that's one of those occasions. Our Lord and Savior is a teacher by nature. He's a preacher um, by nature, and that's exactly what we find him doing here. I mean, in an informal way, um, it's often like you and I as fathers, I hope, you and I as mothers, um, as, as parents, as we go along the way and we're just raising our children, trying to fulfill faithfully and joyfully Deuteronomy 6 to teach our children as we go. And that oftentimes questions arise for whatever reason, whether it's a child who actually wants to know um, or whether it's a child who's trying to get something or whatever have you to deter um, certain uh, punishment, consequences, or, or anything that they don't like. Um, you know, um, Jesus is often like that. He's a father. He's a, a discipler. He's a, a man who is passionate about the truth of God's word, and he takes... Um, people to task all the time throughout the scriptures, whether it's um, by virtue of talking, uh, teaching his disciples or taking the task of, his, of the Pharisees. And that's exactly what you see here. The Pharisees come to him and they ask him about divorce. Um, initially, Jesus doesn't even um, give it any attention. Um, really, the first question they ask in verse number three is, what does Moses command you? 
Um, and that, that, that question is not really geared towards divorce, and we see that in his subsequent statements. Um, but it's more geared towards um, the original, God's original purpose in marriage. Um, and we see that in the follow-up questions. Um, the Pharisees, Moses say that in verse number four, Moses permitted a man to write a certificate of divorce and to dismiss her. And Jesus responds in verse five, um, he only did it because of the hardness of your heart. He wrote you this precept. It was never a command. It was never God's desire. It was never something that he encouraged. Um, it was never something. It was simply um, because of the lack of restraint in your own conscience and the lack of restraint in your own hearts um, and the hardness of it that he allowed um, the regulation of such a, an act as divorce. Um, and then he turns to the original purpose of marriage, which again is where we're going to spend a lot of our time. And last week, um, if you... I want that message, you can go listen to it. Um, we really focused in on that first phrase. Uh, it, from the beginning of creation, God made them. And really God's original purpose in the creation of marriage. The ordination of the institution of male and female coming together. And that it's more than just a physical union. It's more than just material in nature. Um, it had a spiritual aspect to it that ultimately God desired to propagate and display certain truths through the marriage covenant, the marriage companionship, and the marriage relationship. And that at the end of the day, marriage is an institution that belongs to God. That's why at the end of this um, portion of Jesus' words in verse number 9, He says, Therefore what God has joined together, let not man separate or put asunder. There's a reality here that it is God who brings married couples together um, because in the origin of marriage as an institution, um, He is the creator of it. So there is a sense in which any person that enters into marriage, um, God is joined together because they join together in that, that God-owned institution. It's His. You may have thought that it was your faithful pastor or the justice of the peace that solidified the marital arrangement in your life. But the scripture is very clear. The covenant made between you and your wife or you and your husband was ordained by God. Which gives us some hope, right? I had somebody ask me a question some time ago about baptism and the fact that they were a... Um, they've come to the conclusion now that that person was a, probably a false teacher should they be rebaptized. Um... And I just encourage that person that um, the act of baptism is, is, more, is, is essentially about the relationship between you and God and the covenant that makes and that um, infallible preachers. Um, and then if you're looking for a perfect preacher to baptize you, then you're all going to need to be rebaptized. That it's in the act, it's, it's between the covenant that God has made with you and if that was the, the reality of the act is that um, your death, burial, and resurrection because of your repentance and faith is being manifested there, um, that, the, that the act is still legitimate even apart from um, the failures on the part of the preacher. And we can say the same thing about marriage. Thank God we don't need a perfect um, person to marry or to officiate the weddings that bring us together. Otherwise, too, we would all have to be um, remarried. Um, but there's no um, necessary qualifications, it appears, um, for, for that, that official justice that, that, that of the peace or that this or that person, um, the, the pastor, faithful preacher or unfaithful pastor, unfaithful preacher to meet, um, to join because it's not a covenant between that pastor or, or, or preacher. Um, it's a covenant between man, woman, and God. 
Now, you should desire men and women that are going to get married. You should desire a faithful man, or uh, I was going to say faithful woman, but a faithful man uh, that uh, will preach the gospel and uphold marriage um, at your ceremony. But um, it, 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 it's not a necessity. That the act is, so when you look back and you see that you were in a, a bad place inherently, that it doesn't necessarily mean that your, your marriage is nullified because of the person who brought you together, because ultimately um, the institution is ordained by God and entering into it is, is as Malachi 2, 13 and 14 said, is that God is the witness and the covenant is between man and woman, not between man, woman, and that other person that officiated um, the wedding. That it is um, God-ordained. That the covenant that you made between you and your wife was ordained by God. And it doesn't necessarily mean that God positively ordains every marriage. But that He ordained the institution of marriage. And any man and any woman who enter into it, um, enter into a, an institution that's His. He created it. He owns it. Thus He has the right to say how it operates. I know, it always, I know it's not always the brightest circumstances under which two people come together. But once unified in a covenantal act, it appears to be clear from Scripture that it is a union that is meant to be perfect. Whether two unbelievers come together, whether two believers come together, or as Paul illustrates in 1 Corinthians 7, whether it's a believer or an, and an unbeliever, that no man is to separate it because man did not create it. It is God's institutions. And that the two parties, as we learn here in uh, Mark chapter number 10, as Jesus refers back to the Old Testament, that the two parties that make up the covenant um, of marriage is male and female. And uh, it's somewhat sad that I need to say that. But it, um, it needs to be said. Now, if we are to be wise people, then what we must understand is understand the times and how this biblical concept applies to you and to me um, in these days. We have to be aware of the massive attempts of our culture to separate that which God has brought together. Why? Because that's the command, that's the um, statement at the end in verse number 9. If God has brought this together, let not man separate it. And if you value God's Word as inspired and authoritative, if you love God-ordained, inspired um, revelation, and you love God-ordained, monogamous, heterosexual marriage as defined by the Bible, if you cherish God-ordained differences among males and females, then you must understand, in some sense, as we come to this text, we must apply the text to the current culture of the attacks of the world that are designed to destroy it whether it's through destroying marriage as an institution, whether it's as degrading the marriage relationship through um, the erosion of gender distinctions or even uh, the male-female role differences or, or again, marriage um, altogether. We must seek to understand those influences that seek to undermine our marriages. Furthermore, we must do it not only for ourselves and for the church, but for our children who are the direct object of many of the attacks coming today on marriage. We need, to have, we need to help them see the beauty of God's truth and see the lies of the world that they might grow up and honor God in a God-ordained marriage and a covenant companionship. We have to understand Satan's attack on Christian marriages. If the fabric of church and society is families, and I believe that it is, then there's no doubt that one of Satan's most direct attacks will be the God-ordained institution of marriage. Why? 
Simply to unravel the family is to unravel the church. To unravel the family is to unravel a society. It is to ruin the witness and the ultimate influence of the church and the world in which we live. And also particularly of the next um, generation. Thus it's incumbent for us to teach and to preach and to talk about things that we don't like to talk about. You know? Um, I would love to stand up here today and preach as I sat under preaching in early in my Christian um, life 10 to 15 years ago and say that there is something coming and we need to seek and do whatever it is that we can um, to oppose it. But in just the last decade, you know, I stand up here to, to preach against the strategies of Satan and the culture and the world about things that are not coming, but things that are already here. You know? That it's, it's not inevitable. It's a present among us. You know? That there is a war upon... Um, that there is a war upon marriage. And it's being waged. Um, even this day. And it manifests itself in many ways. It manifests itself in the homosexual movement. It manifests itself in the feminist movement. It manifests itself in a transgender movement. Um, it manifests itself in a number of ways in which over the last few decades, and particularly the last decade and even now, is taking a monumental speed. It's like a train that began ages ago in a small um, in a small speed, and now it's taken off in such a direction and such a force that it almost seems unstoppable. As the homosexual community, the transgender community, as the feminist um, community just take marriage um, and seek to destroy it um, altogether. And the scary thing is, is as one um, Gnostic scholar wrote in the early days is that not only is it here, but the, the great tragedy is, is that most people don't know it. Um, as he, as the Gnostic scholar wrote, he says, it is in the air that we breathe. And, um, and dare I say that it's in many of our lungs. That if you were to walk into a, um, a place of work, or you were to walk into um, almost any institution, whether it's my generation or especially the generations that are to follow. Um, it wouldn't be uncommon to have a conversation or to walk into a conversation of people um, in which a man or a woman or a man says, I, I feel like a man trapped in a woman's body, or vice versa. And it's a conversation that if you were to even respectfully oppose, that you would be deemed as, um, as a hate monger. That discrimination, and you'd be likely to even lose your job depending upon um, what career choice that you've, you've chosen. And the scary thing is, is that um, as far as I can tell, that it is something that has gripped society at large, and it never had to be taught formally. Even in our area, um, you don't see an academic curriculum being passed around in public schools in which they're teaching um, you know, the transgender movement and how to, how to be this or how to be that and how to be sensitive. Now, it's coming to your careers and it's in your workplace, um, but, but it hasn't in the last three decades been inherently there. So the one great question that arises is how in the world did it take root? 
And it takes root through many forms. It took root many ages ago through film. It's taken many root through Hollywood. It's taken many root through many of the things that you put before your eyes and you put before your ears. Social media is a, is a monster now that is a foe to be um, reckoned with and which is educating our children at large and even was educating me um, a decade ago, and in many other fashions, I was being educated through other means similar to social media, such that my morals and my values were shaped at a very young age. I can even tell you that in a, in a, in a, in a, in a difficult part of my life, as I strayed from God, um, as a college uh, young man, I even wrote um, articles, I wrote uh, papers in English classes defending homosexuality. You know, that it was something that I never had to be taught. It wasn't something that mama set me down and said, you know, uh, sensitivity training. It wasn't something that um, was running rampant in um, the um, hillbilly public school that I was a part of in the county. It was actually something that was somewhat opposed from an establishment um, perspective. But it was something that was taking root um, in, the, in, the, in the back rooms and in the, in the closets and in, in media and on Facebook and in other places as... Um, as these crowds were taking um, this type of philosophy by storm, and now it's already here. Um, it's already here. And as much as we don't want to talk about it, we have to. As much as you don't want to mention it to your children, you have to. Um, because if they don't learn about these things from home, and they don't know, learn about God-ordained marriage, and God-ordained sexuality, and God-ordained um, institutions such as marriage from you, if they don't learn about um, God-ordained physical intimacy between a man and a woman, I'm going to tell you they're going to learn it from somewhere. Um, uh, for the last two generations, they've not learned it from the church, and, and they've not learned it from most, um, from most parents. It's become an, a, 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 a subject that has become somewhat taboo, and um, evil to talk about. Thus, we you know slip at the best um, books underneath our children's doors to train them in in certain subjects that we don't even want to talk about. And some of you are uncomfortable talking about it even now. Uh, but they're going to get educated. Why? Because they're born with God-given um, desires that will incline them um, towards the opposite sex. And if you don't educate them and they're not receiving any instruction from the church, you better believe that there are teachers um, that are coming down the pike in formal capacities. And if not, um, they'll learn about it on whatever platform that you allow them to be upon. That it is something that has to be taken at, head, um, at, at, at the forefront. It's something that has to be taken with our children. And I have to take with my children. And my wife has to take with our children. And we have to educate. We have to talk about. Um, because even if that's not the case, there's no doubt that when they get out into the world, you know, they're going to run into people just like this. You know, who have these morals, who have these values, who are shaped by this, and thus it's even um, uh, inculcated and just um, and pervaded um, their lifestyles. You know, 10 to 15 to 20 years ago, I didn't have to worry about running into um, a transgender person in, in my public school. I didn't have to worry about um, encountering even um, Muslims or different faiths and a number of other things. Um, I didn't have to worry about um, engaging a conversation with somebody about these topics or issues, but you better believe that your children at the age that they are now, and where we are at at this point, in 10 years, they will not be able to engage in society and be a light to a lost and a dying world without running into, without meeting. And, with, and if they're not ready, um, they'll be much like my um, Catholic doctor that I met one time who was a cardiologist um, who converted to... Some other religion because he, uh, because he was never governed, he was never taught um, about homosexuality other than it's just bad and icky. So when he met 
a, an actual homosexual and became personal with them in a friendship relationship. It changed everything um, that he ever believed about homosexuality. And he abandoned the truth of God's word and he probably abandoned it long before then. All I'm saying is, is that if we don't talk about it, um, our children will not be prepared for it. Um, and if they don't have a root in God's word as to what God says, um, then inevitably um, we're feeding them to the wolves. Um, and I think that that's the best approach. I don't think that you need to come up with some great psychology or some great philosophical method or some great strategy to defend the faith. Um, I don't think that evidence-based social um, constructs and a number of other things are the most efficient. I think that we simply go to God's word as Jesus did. Um, he didn't argue that divorce was wrong because it destroyed families. He didn't argue that it led to you know, fatherless homes. He didn't argue that it led to drug addictions. He didn't argue that um, because of the depraved, depraved nature of the, the consequences of such things. Um, no, he simply said that in the beginning this was it's God's. It's his. And that the greatest defense of the faith is simply to know what God says on the issues. That doesn't mean that you take it and you just overpower and overbear and just hit them over the head um, as if they are lost without any hope. Um, but that in marriage, um, God ordained something um, amazingly beautiful and that it is a gift to mankind. That ultimately it expresses spiritual truths um, that teach you about God thus that you may know Him and that you may love Him and that you may serve Him and have eternal life that it displays the glory of God through that mutual love and compassion and covenantal nature. And thus, to abandon the God-ordained institution of marriage is to abandon um, God, um, God's revelation and His truth and reality about Himself. And that whenever we approach marriage, we approach it as Christ did, to love the people. Um, not to bind them to some social institution, but because God ordained it, and in His purposes of ordaining it, He had a particular purpose, not only for Himself, but for the people. And that the most loving thing that you and I can do is offer them the truth of God's Word on the issues. And thus it's loving to take a stand against um, anything that brings itself um, in opposition to that. And that seeks to malign um, destruct and destroy and to put this institution apart. And homosexuality is um, one of those. And we have to talk about it. That homosexuality is a war to normalize perversion by undermining the heterosexual monogamy of God-ordained marriage. If you were to take your Bible and turn to Romans chapter number 1, it's probably a very familiar passage of Scripture to you. In Romans chapter number 1 and verse 22, you read these words. Professing to be wise, they became fools and changed the glory of an incorruptible God into an image made like corruptible man. Birds and four-footed animals and creeping things. Therefore God also gave them up to uncleanness in the lust of their hearts to dishonor their bodies among themselves. Who exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the Creator who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason God gave them up to vile passions. For even their women exchanged the natural use for what is against nature. Likewise also the men, leaving the natural use of the woman, burned in their lust for one another, shameful and receiving in themselves the penalty of their error which was due. And even as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge, God gave them over to a debased mind 
to do things which are not fitting. Being filled with all unrighteousness, sexual immorality, wickedness, covetousness, maliciousness, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, uh, deceit, evil-mindedness, they are whispers, backbiters, haters of God, violent, proud, boasters, inventors of evil things, disobedient to parents, undiscerning, untrustworthy, loving, unforgiving, unmerciful, who knowing, the un, who knowing the righteous judgment of God, that those who practice such things are deserving of death, not only do the same, but also approve those who practice them. That homosexuality is a direct attack upon the institution of marriage. I mean, it's not, an, it's, it's not, it's not a movement in which is just desires to lead a quiet and peaceable life and let bygones be bygones and let people live the way that they desire to live. Just let me live the way that I desire. One leading advocate of the, of the movement said, we're no longer seeking just a right to privacy or protection from wrong. We have a right to see government and society affirm our lives. But the agenda is well-funded. It's comprehensive. It's a new civil rights movement. That is, that it's an orientation to qualify as minority status with all accompanying rights. They're after the right of homosexual adoption, redefinition of marriage and family, some of the lowering of sexual age for children, forcing gender-specific organizations as well as religious institutions to accept homosexual members, staff members, um, and to go after them with a vengeance if anything is done to the contrary. Um, they balk at the concept of bullying, yet they're bullies themselves. They cry for tolerance, and the very opposite of it is true. Make no mistake about it. The goal is not simply to live peaceably, live peaceably in a society, but for many it's to take over. Let me say this too, that I understand that that's definitely not the agenda of all those who desire that lifestyle. But I am more convinced that this agenda um, of many and it's easily seen in the statement before, and I could reproduce that a hundredfold. Listen, this is, in the, this is not just in the mainstream secular world, this is in the church as well. There were long, last, long past just liberal denominations ordaining homosexuals or affirming the lifestyle. We're now seeing transgender movement take pastoral positions as well. But even not so liberal branches of Protestantism, um, we're seeing men and churches waffle on the positions no doubt because it's overwhelming before us and we have to answer the questions. Many of those men argue that the Bible is accepting of homosexual orientation and monogamous relationships between homosexuals. But what it rejects is merely homosexual promiscuity. At even more conservative levels, men and women in churches that we would have even fellowshipped with two or three years ago are now accepting homosexual orientation and same-sex attraction as being a gay Christian. Um, as long as they don't um, act upon those desires them, themselves. The concept is even born within uh, many churches that we would consider to be conservative uh, branches. Um, what does the Bible say about homosexuality? I mean, is it something we should embrace or is it something that we should deter? Is it an attack upon um, marriage as an institution? I would argue yes. Romans 1 is very explicit. That number one, human beings um, go down a a path outside of God in which, particularly in nations, in which um, you see a threefold sequence of thought. That human beings exchange God for what has made, for what He has made. And that we prefer the creature to the Creator. And that number two, God hands us over to what we prefer. That number three, we act out externally and bodily um, and sexually, a dramatization of the internal spiritual condition of a fallen soul, namely through the horrendous exchange of God for man. 
and the images of your own power. And what, I, and what I'm arguing here is, is that really that seems to be the pinnacle. That there is a progression in societies particularly that manifests itself in culmination um, of sinful thought in which it culminates in a sexual revolution um, that manifests itself in a homosexual revolution. One writer goes on to write these words. He says, The deepest problem of our lives, whether heterosexual or homosexual, is terrible exchange for the glory of God for images. The exchange of the truth of God for a lie. The disapproval of having God in our knowledge. Failed worship is our worst disorder, he says. This is beneath all the maladies of the world. Repairing this, not first our disordered sexuality, is our main business in life. What he's saying is he's saying that, that failed worship of God leads to irreverent practices. And he goes on to say that the sexual disordering of our lives most vividly seen in homosexuality, though not only there, is the judgment of God upon the human race because we've exchanged the glory of God for other things. Sometimes people ask, he says, is AIDS the judgment of God on homosexuality? The answer from the text is this. Homosexuality is itself a judgment on the human race because we have exchanged the glory of God for the creature. And so is AIDS and cancer and arthritis and Alzheimer's and every other disease and every other futility of the misery in the world, including death. And that's the point of Romans. And the reason Paul focuses on homosexuality in these verses, he goes on to say, is because it's the most vivid dramatization in life of the most profound connection between the disordering of heart worship and the disordering of our sexual lives. He says, I'll try to say it simply, though it's weighty beyond words. We learn from Paul in Ephesians that from the beginning, manhood and womanhood existed to represent or dramatize God's relationship of his people. So it depicts something about God, and we learned that last week. And then Christ's revelation to his bride, the church. In this drama, the man represents God or Christ and his love to his wife as Christ loved the church. The woman represents God's people or the church. That is what he's saying is that the God means for the beauty of worship to be dramatized in the right ordering of our sexual lives. But instead, he goes on to say, we've exchanged the glory of God for images, especially ourselves. That the beauty of heart worship has been destroyed. Therefore, in judgment, God decrees that this disordering of our relation to Him be dramatized in the disordering of our sexual relations with each other. That homosexuality is the most vivid form of that breakdown of worship. God and man in covenant worship are represented by male and female in covenant sexual union. Therefore, when man turns to God to images of himself, God hands us over to what we've chosen. And dramatizes it by male and female turning to images of themselves for sexual union, namely their own sex. Homosexuality is the judgment of God dramatizing the exchange of the glory of God for images of ourselves. And that's what you see. But it doesn't begin there. You know? Sometimes we're very difficult and hard on the homosexual movement because it seems to be the most vivid dramatization of and the exchange of God's worship for the worship of ourselves. But can I say that if we step back a few steps, we'll realize that the dramatization began long ago in the heart worship of man. It began in places like uh, feminism. It began in the start of a movement called androgyny, or the transgender movement. Um, androgyny simply means male and female. It comes from two words that literally mean that. It could be translated unisex. 
This movement seeks to obliterate all sexual and gender distinctions by uh, masculinizing girls and feminizing boys. It's not an attempt to obliterate both genders, but to mesh them into one in this sense of what they call as equality. Um, it manifests itself in our culture and new cultural norms, the way kids dress, the way they cut their hair, the toys they play with, the activities that they engage in. It's seen in movies and TV shows, and it has been for decades. You wonder how we got here. This is how. You know, let's face it, Hollywood is nose deep in masculinizing women and feminizing men. Disney's a perfect example of that. I get it, it's cute with cartoons. And um, it's animal characters and it's cute songs and some days I can get enamored with it. But not long after it began, feminists and homosexuals have long been influencing some of America's most beloved movies by weaseling their way into their homes and influencing even the way that we think about men and the way that we think about women and the way that we think about marriage. And I say that because that's one of the most unlikely suspects, not because it's the most evil explicitly. Because today you can find some most explicit forms in which uh, male-female relationships and roles are just degraded, how men are portrayed as just buffoons in a marriage, and how uh, the women are independent and, and capable and just pursuing um, all of these things. There's definitely agenda in many things um, in which they are turning uh, marriage on its head and seeking even decades ago, whether you saw it coming or not, infiltrating the homes, infiltrating our minds and our children. How in the world is it that we weren't formally taught with an ad academic curriculum, yet we are, and everybody knows the morals and the values of our day? I mean, it came through movies, it came through TV shows, it came through media, it came through socialization, and it came through many forms. There is a such, but we must remember that there is such a thing as biblical masculinity and biblical femininity which expresses itself in roles and relationships and personalities and in godliness which we cannot allow to be eroded. Thus we must be careful with the things that we handle, the things that we watch, the things that we, we hear and the things that we let our children hear. It's not only in the world, it's in the churches. You know, you wonder how in the world do we ordain today uh, men and women and transgender. I mean, it, wasn't, it just didn't happen in a vacuum. It began long ago, again, with the feminist movement and the irradiation and the degradation of um, the roles within churches between men and women. And again, some of you are very uncomfortable with this. And let me just say that in many days I'm very uncomfortable with this as well. I'm uncomfortable talking about it. Why? Because um, I grew up in a public institution engaged in all sorts of immorality. And I was taught this way. And that often days I have to take myself and my thoughts captive um, to think why. Because inevitably what it goes to is it goes to equality and value. And you think because God ordained. And I think because God ordained um, these, these differences between men and women that were taking sides. And, um, and that power and prestige and that potential and that the value of women is being undermined and integrated. And I just want to say that, that I am convinced that women are as much and uh, some days I feel like more valuable than men are. Um, and that there is no, um, I pray, inkling of thought um, that men have any more value um, within the world than, than women do. No more than I do as 1 Corinthians chapter 10 and 11 illustrate Christ taking a submissive role with the Father and accomplishing the great task that God has given him to do. And thus we as man and woman are to engage in the roles and responsibilities that God has given us. And I believe that that's what's talked about in Genesis chapter 1 where God says that it wasn't good that man was alone, so he made him a comparable helper, a, a helpmeet, a suitable person that could come alongside that was of the same substance as he is to help and to aid him. 
Now, I don't mean that that means that every single man needs a, an, a, a capable helper. Otherwise, um, singleness would be out the window, yet, yet Paul exalts that. But I do believe that that means that in the beginning that God had a purpose for mankind and without woman to come alongside him, it would have been an impossibility uh, for them to complete the task that God had given Adam. There was no one there that could help him. There wasn't an ox, there wasn't an animal, there wasn't a lion, there wasn't an ape, there wasn't a fish of the sea or a bird of the air um, that could have ever um, helped him aid completing the task even if he would have taken dominion over all of it himself. So God creates woman to come alongside him as a suitable helper. And men, that should teach us something. That we are not in and of ourselves complete as a human race and cannot accomplish the task without suitable women to come alongside us and help us and aid us that we are incomplete in that sense. That we can muster up all the strength, intellect, academia, and all the weapons of the world, all the ammunition that we've got, all the animals. And if we take dominion over it all, um, God has made this place incomplete for us to accomplish without the suitable helpers that He's given us in females. That we need um, the, the woman race. We need women um, because we are not um, enough. And in some sense, that too illustrates spiritual reality of Christ and His church that, that God ordained before ages began that Christ would come in and lead the church and He would bind Himself to a bride in which would come alongside Him that would be born out of His own rib of the same substance that would be divine in nature as God saves them and as they come and as, as the bride comes along Christ and Christ comes along the bride together and they accomplish the great commission that God has given them to go into all the world and spread His image and to preach the gospel to the ends of the age. I say that because I think it needs to be said. Because some of us get very uncomfortable when we talk about role distinctions and we think that we're elevating men above women or, or vice versa. And that's not the goal at all. It is to recognize God's ordained purpose in this, this, this uh, institution such that we honor it to complete the task that God has given us. And I'm convinced um, that the task has, we have failed as a church and we have failed as a church at large and we failed throughout church history when we have reversed the roles or just eroded the distinctions and we've got this thing that is neither male nor female but it is somewhere in the middle and they've lost their distinctness. They, they can't help one another because they don't have anything different to offer each other and we will self-destruct as we have in many days before. But again, the problem is not ultimately homosexuality. The problem is not ultimately feminism. The problem is not ultimately androgyny. Let me tell you what the problem is. As I said just a few minutes ago, let me repeat it. The deepest problem of our lives, whether heterosexual or homosexual, is the terrible exchange of glory of God for images. It's failed worship in our hearts. Failed worship is our worst disorder. That feminism and androgyny and homosexuality really began long ago in failed heart worship. And the philosophy in our culture has really began to take root in what is known as a concept of expressive individualism. The idea is that each person finds their own meaning by giving expression to their own feelings and their own desires. One writer defines it like this, it's the understanding of life which emerges from a romantic expressivism of the late 18th century, that each of us has his or her own way of realizing our humanity, and that it is important to find and live out one's own, um, own purpose 
as against surrendering to conformity with a model imposed on us from the outside by society or by a previous generation or by a religious or a political authority. They believe that the purpose of humanity in our culture is um, rapidly changing. That in previous, and we should note that in previous generations and cultures, the focus of mankind was primarily outward, that we would be shaped by outward forces. Whether it was men who found their identity in the activities that they engaged in, in public life and community, or found a sense of self and in religion, or found a meaning and a sense of self in trade, um, but today is a different age and a different battle. Today, man is not encouraged to find meaning out there or to be shaped by anything. But he is encouraged to find his reality in here. So, he can sit on a couch for two years on a search to find himself without lifting a, a finger to work, and everyone thinks that's okay and even deep and meaningful. Why? Because he's trying to find himself. Whereas in days past, there were institutions ordained by God and created by man to help with that question. It was, there was a realization and there should be a realization in us today to, to understand the, the, the nature of man and the depravity of man such that, that everything is convoluted and everything is, 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 is self-worship. And if we leave man alone, the only thing that he will find is himself. And in himself, he will find destruction. Thus, men live, led to themselves will utterly be destroyed and they will destroy themselves. Thus, that's why um, the commentator and many men today, and I think the scripture said earlier that um, homosexuality is, is the judgment of God. They, God God gives men over to themselves and what they desire and what they find um, in and of themselves and ultimately it destroys themselves. That the, that the banner of today is that, um, that the institutional religion, institutional whatever um, is oppressive, it's systemically evil because they question me. They question my morals. They question my purpose. They question who I am. So the goal of most institutions today and even in the church is to create safe places um, where nobody gets offended and the institutions that were once to form, once to shape, once to mold human beings with purpose and with direction have now become places of self-affirmation. Teachers and professors are now encouraged to affirm the individual of each person and their, 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 their individuality, and even if it denies reality. So now these institutions that were once places to be matured, to be shaped and to be formed by morals and values of the institution are now taught, are now just environments for them to perform. They're simply places to go where one, um, instead of being shaped, um, are now shaped by the act of performing. Now institutions that were supposed to shape individuals are merely stages and outlets of individuals to shape themselves, find themselves, actualize their own potential. They're institutions provide an arena to pursue one's own self and for you to see your own potential. Think about it. Think about the older people, you know. And when you went to school or even studied days past, schools were there to teach you something. Most of you went to a school in a public arena and uh, I'm not sure you know people now that do. But even now, what does your child learn about? I can tell you from personal experience in my age, it wasn't how to function as a citizen. It wasn't how to be a churchman. It wasn't how to be a family man, that's for sure. Because I got out of 13 years of public education and I had no clue where to go, what to do, who to marry, or how to balance a checkbook. You know? But there was ever opportunity given to me to find myself. 
whether it was on a basketball court or in a theater um, or in whatever other capacity that we want to define, right? And now any institution that stands up and says, this is who you are and this is what you're to do seems oppressive. Parenting today has been all too affected by this as well. We're encouraged to let our children express themselves as individuals, choose their gender, determine their reality, and then tell them how wonderful, how intelligent, and how creative they are. The home has become a platform for the child to find themselves and embrace their own potential instead of institution, instead of an institution ordained by God to shape those little ones for the glory of God. So now we have haphazard parenting with, uh, with, with little to no restraints, um, allowing children to find themselves all the while solidifying habits and different things in their lives that will lead to their utter destruction. That listen, parents, God gave you um, gave you children so that you could raise them in the nurture and the admonition of the Lord because they're they're fallen little uh, creatures just like I was that, that that need to be trained up in the way that they ought to go. Um, but even the, the the and the church is no different. You know, pastors today are to stand in pulpits and to affirm all sorts of lifestyles. It's not enough for someone to be transgender or homosexual. It's the obligation of every social institution today to affirm, and, um, and, and any silence is violence. Um, so we're affirming anything and everything that comes within the church, and, and to talk about anything like church discipline or holding someone accountable in a true, real way is, is somewhat offensive. And it stands in the way of my walk to God. And we've individualized Christianity and removed the corporate nature of it altogether and the holding of one's accountability, just like in the parental institution and just like in the public institution. And now all we're simply to provide in all of these institutions are stages of entertainment for people to find themselves. You know what you have when you have you know, 300 million people in the same country finding themselves? Self-destruction. That's exactly what you find. Because the truth and the reality is is that we were born corporate in nature. We were born to desire and to, to affiliate and to build relationships and various other things. We were born with these inclinations. And that's exactly why it's not enough for um, this crowd or that crowd to live and let bygones be bygones. Um, everyone must be affirmed because we were created to be with other people. So it's not enough to be alone. You know, they have to be out there and they have to, to, to promote these things and that thing and various other um, uh, morals and values and to shape. And, and, and that's exactly the, the progress. That it's a failure of heart worship. It's a, it's, 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 it's a, 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 a psychologized way of, to call it expressive individualism, but really it's, it's a way to, it's, a, it's, it's, it's Romans chapter 1. And it's an expression of heart worship that defies God. Thus, God gives them over to whatever it is that they desire. That's what expressive individualism is. To abandon all other institutions that God ordained to, to, to shape fallen creatures and press them towards the glory of God and say, none of that is necessary. I'm going to allow my children or my church to find God on their own. They will never find Him on their own. That's why Jesus Christ died upon the cross. That's why He came to seek and to save that which was lost. That's why He ordained men and women throughout the ages in these, 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 these uh, ecclesiastical and, and parental um, uh, institutions to go into all the world and to preach the gospel. That's why the gospel is necessary in this area, in that area, in our area, and all across the world because man left to himself will self-destruct. 
Yes, homosexuality is an affront to God and, 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 and this, this tactic to put um, what God has brought together asunder. Yes, feminism is that very same thing. Yes, androgyny is that very same thing. But it begins here. You know? It begins in the heart. It's wrought in the heart. In which you say, well, what do we do to battle it? Like, how do you change a current? Right? You know? Like, that's the great question. Get this very tantalizing sermon, and some of you are like, yes, yes, now what do we do? You know? What do you do? What do you do when man has ascended to God in his own heart? Romans chapter 1. What do you do when the abandonment of the marriage institution seems systemic? Um, you recognize that that's, again, not the ultimate problem. It's a symptom of a deeper problem, and that problem is idolatry, and it's a worship of self. And it's so hard to see. That's the tragedy. Men can't see it. Women can't see it. On most days, I can't either because the heart is deceitfully wicked, and it's part of the air we breathe. So we can take a route and say there's nothing we can do. Um, or we can realize that as families and as a church, that God has given us an influence in this world and in this culture, and that's exactly where it begins. The pastors today begin by simply standing up and saying and teaching God's word. By teaching God's design, by teaching God's plan for us and for the world. This means that the world is full of people, and us included, that need to be shaped and formed into something that we're not. And we need to be instructed in the truth of God's word. We need to know what pleases God. We need to know God. Without it, we're lost. Without it, we're wandering around these institutions. And the only thing we could ever find is each other. And in essence, all we'll ever be able to find is ourselves. That God ordained these institutions and we should cling to these institutions and to the Word of God. Otherwise, we are fundamentally by ourselves going to get them wrong. If left to ourselves, we'll create all sorts of institutions. And we'll do with them as we need. So we need men. who will stand up and instruct men to be men and women to be women. And I know that sounds backwards and hillbilly and fundamental. Maybe it is. Maybe that's part of the air you breathe now. And that's why we say that. We need to be taught that each one of us is different according to God's design and that the roles are different according to God's word. And that men and women are not more valuable than others, but they picture this glorious nature of the gospel. And that men, uh, what, what you can do is not only train your children up by, 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 by recognizing their sinful little hearts and the nature that they have because as you understood your sinful heart and the nature that you have and that the grace of God, if it's ever going to be bestowed upon them, then we must teach them the Word of God. So to combat homosexuality and the feminist movement and the androgyny movement, it's, it, it must begin with a humble heart of heart worship that expresses itself in our families and in our church. And where we submit joyfully and willfully to the truth of God's Word and ask Him to transform it. And if something like a man needs to be a man and a woman needs to be a woman is offensive to us, then we need to just ask God to beg, and beg Him to teach us to love the truth. And if God has given us you know, the responsibility of training our children up in the nurture and the admonition of the Lord, and we're seeking out every single opportunity, and it just seems backwards and hillbilly, and this person's not doing it, and they're getting along fine, and all these things, then we need to repent. We need to recognize the glorious nature of this marital institution and that God ordained it for His glory and that it's good. You know? And that we need to recognize other things that come in and seek to put that asunder, men. That it's not only feminism and androgyny and homosexuality, but often it's born in the way that we carry out our leadership responsibilities. 
Oftentimes, it's birthed in a, in a, in a wife or in a, a child because of a tyrannical leader in a home. Why? Because he abuses the word of God as the Pharisees do, even here in Mark chapter number nine, uh, in, sorry, Mark chapter number ten, such that um, you do see um, a value that he places upon himself and upon man uh, more than a woman. That what you need to do, men, and what I need to do is to submit to the truth of God's word. That primarily my leadership comes through servant leadership in the home, and that I take my model not from the world or from the next, the latest, greatest um, book on marriage, but I take it from the Apostle Paul and Christ Himself, as He inspires Him to do it. That I am to love my wife as Christ loved the church, such that I'm willing to give myself for it. Why? So that she may be sanctified and we might present her um, to Christ one day as a mature, spotless bride. Because that's what Christ is accomplishing for His bride. And we are to wash more feet than we are to um, inherently bark out orders. But yes, I still believe in headship and sometimes a wife, it, it necessitates her to be um, uh, joyfully, willfully submitted, but, but it's not like a, a, a man that is to come alongside or come behind her and force her to do it. As far as I can tell, Ephesians chapter 5, the command is for wives to be submissive to their husbands. And that occasionally you'll find in disagreement that the man will have to take the lead and make the decision. But overwhelmingly, um, at the end of life, I trust that most men who have cultivated a godly life and self-sacrifices um, often gives um, his wife the desires of his heart and even forfeits his own rights and, um, and uh, his own rights and, and, and other things because of the love that he has uh, for his wife, exampling that even of Christ. And that their union will grow so tight-knit such that they even begin to think like one another as they come unified in the Word of God. Thus that submission, um, as it in that form, will begin to um, erode as time goes on, not because she's not submissive, but because of the relationship that's being cultivated, that they're on the same page about most, most things. And that men and women are to come together in their relationship and train their children in the, in the nurture and the admonition of the Lord. That that's our tactic. I'm Titus chapter number 2. Um, I want to read to you a passage. And I have so many more things to say, but 12 o'clock is upon us. So let us finish with this. Titus chapter number 2, and I'm not here to instruct you necessarily on um, all the definitive responsibilities of husbands and wives and parents and children. Although maybe that needs to come in the next few days. I need to be reminded of those things. But the purpose in it, I want you to know the purpose in it, okay? Because some of you may be wondering why. Why? As a Christian, this should move you. In Titus chapter 2 and verse number 3, you read this, that likewise older women, um, that they may be reverent in behavior, slanderers, not given to much wine, teachers of good things, that they may admonish the young women to love their husbands, to love their children, to be discreet, chaste, homemakers, good, obedient to their own husbands. Why, Lord? That the word of God may not be blasphemed. Likewise, exhort the young men to be sober-minded in all things, showing yourself to be a good pattern of good work, a pattern of good works in doctrine, showing integrity, reverence, incorruptibility, sound speech that cannot be uh, cannot be condemned. That one who is an opponent may be ashamed, having nothing evil to say of you. Exhort bondservants to be obedient to their own masters, to be well pleasing to all things, not not answering back, not pilfering, but showing good, all good fidelity that they may adorn the doctrine of God, our Savior. In all things. 
That even now when we talk about roles and responsibilities and we take Mark chapter 10 and he says, in the beginning it was not so, I created male and female. Um, I created them one flesh. I created that there is a, a, a reason for the way that I instituted um, the marriage relationship and the marriage institution. It's not only beneficial to you, but it is a display of my character and, my rea- and the reality of God throughout all the world. To get it wrong is to lie to the world. To get it wrong is to blaspheme the Word of God. To get it is not to adorn the doctrine of God. To get it is to give our opponents, those who withstand the faith, to say, of course there is no God. Look at them. And that's exactly what happened in Romans chapter 2. That's exactly what happened in the nation of Israel. That there is a testimony in Romans chapter 2 of the nation of Israel that literally says um, that, 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 that God was blasphemed because of them. That the way that they carried themselves, particularly in rejection to God's truth, and they carried in such a hypocritical manner and, 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 and just worked around things like divorce... Right? In Matthew, or Mark chapter 10, Matthew chapter 19, and other places, it's exactly what you see. You see the Pharisees manipulating the means of grace, the Word of God, um, to skirt around the morality that God requires of all men. You know why? Because they saw it as a bondage, they saw it as a slavery. When Paul tells us that once you come to Christ, you are no longer a slave and in bondage to sin, there's a freedom now to walk in Christ. So yield yourselves and your menders to righteousness from here on. You died to sin, therefore walk in. And it's incumbent upon us as, as men, as women, as husbands, as fathers, as, as children, as parents, as church members, as pastors, as elders, as deacons, as, as, as people who just sit on the pew and they, and they carry out their lives in common, in seemingly common ways throughout, throughout the world, but they're, they're sacred in nature. Um, that, that it is incumbent upon us to live in, free, in the freedom that Christ gives us to be godly and to be moral and to walk in the statutes that He's laid before us. You know what the world needs to see? So what do we do about homosexuality? What do we do about androgyny? You know what we do about uh, feminism? What do we do about um, uh, tyrannical, tyrannical patriarchy? Men, you love your wives like Christ loved the church and gave Himself for it. You know what? You seek opportunities to live that out in the world. You don't stay holed up in a, in a home somewhere worried about um, what this uh, election is going to bring or the next election is going to bring. You trust that God is going to preserve you and your family and the church. And, and if He doesn't, then um, if not thy will, you know, if not my will, thine be done. And you recognize that you're not here to live in a hole in a, in, in a combine somewhere, you know, um, stocking up until Jesus returns. Um, but that we're to live in the world and we're to seek out opportunities um, to be something distinctly different in the world. Um, you know how you, you battle homosexuality? Man, man, you love your wives like Christ loved the church. Ladies, um, you reciprocate that love like the bride of Christ does to the church. You know, and you just love every minute of it. You know? And you just show them the glory and the majesty of a one flesh union that is in Christ. And you show them a well-ordered home. And you take your children out often, even though it may cost a little bit, or do this or that. You know, why? So that you can be an example, not to lord over anyone or to say we're holier than thou, um, but to display the truth of God's word. And you trust that um, you can't accomplish anything in your own strength, but you're just praying that God would use some fallible attempt of you to, to, to just be a blessing to your family and, and for them to be a blessing to other families, you know? 
Um, you, you, you honor male and, the, the male and female distinctness. You honor the covenant relationship between you and your wife. You, you honor the companionship. You, you show other people that she's your greatest friend and you confide in her like no one else. And there's just this affection that you have with one another that just makes other people irritated, you know? That there's a love there that, you know, and, and that's it. That, that, that seems to be almost kind of like weird Christianity anymore. Um, it seems to be kind of like super um, spiritual to, to be just in love with Christ and joy just to be upon your, your souls. Um, but that's the, that's the goal. You know, that's the idea. I think it's um, Song of Songs, and, which is um, not always a key place to go. And um, it speaks to the relationship of a husband and a wife and how they enjoyed one another and there was an affection, affection um, uh, with one another that was evident to all. And in some ways that pictures Christ in His church and that there's a love for Christ to His church and the church to Christ such that it should be evident to the world. You know? Um, and it should be displaying the truth of God's Word with joy on your face. I've been ever so ever convicted about the lack of joy in my own life and Lack of the display of it. How do you battle androgyny? How do you battle homosexuality? How do you battle feminism? Man, you just live out God's design for marriage. Man, you pursue your wife um, as your greatest affection outside of Christ. And you pursue her for her joy. You know? As a servant leader. I think it's in um, 2 Corinthians chapter number 1. Maybe I can find this, yeah. Verse number 24. You know what Paul did? He says, Not that we have dominion over your faith, but we are fellow workers for your joy, for by faith you stand. Paul to the Corinth writes and says, I could have lorded over you the authority that I have in Christ, but I didn't. I work hard for your joy. I work hard as a servant leader. I work hard looking for opportunities to come in. As Matthew 20, 25 through 28 says of Christ, I think Philippians chapter 2 more highly of others than I esteem myself. Thus I become a servant. Men, you know, the world needs to see more than anything. Men that are committed to their wives such that they often serve them in a capacity um, that benefits and increases their joy. And as her joy increases, your joy increases. Her joy is your joy. Christ's joy is our joy. You know what that does? It manifests itself to our families, to our children, as we procreate with God and bring children into this world. The gospel is ever present, ever present among them and displayed before them. Um, and we propagate the truth, not only evangelically throughout the world, but even within our own homes. One of the great blessings of divine sanction of marriage I mean, is the ability to, to have children. It's not the only blessing. There are many people who have um, infertile wombs, and we understand that Christ has a purpose in all of that. And they're not less than Christians, and they're not less than couples. Um, they probably have a special ministry that God has given to them that they can do without the um, burden and blessing of children. But if God gives you children, you pursue them with all that you have, men. You pursue them like the world doesn't. That's how you battle homosexuality. That's how you battle androgyny. That's how you battle feminism. That's how you battle tyrannical um, patriarchy. You simply abide, adhere to, love, joyfully submit, and carry out God's design for you. I think part of the problem is with most of us is most men don't know what that is. We don't know what it's like to be a man. We don't know what God requires of us. We don't know what it's, he requires of us in the home with our wives, with our children. 
Um, many of us are just apathetic and indifferent. I say, men, you're wasting a gold mine. You know? You're wasting a gold mine. Um, you're sacrificing worship with God and you're sacrificing, sacrificing a covenantal union with your wife that is a blessing that will never be rivaled with. Um, you're sacrificing your children to Molech, to the gods of this age, and you're sacrificing your influence to the world. You know, you say, it sounds backward and hillbilly. But I'll take it. I'll take it. I'll take it if it honors God. I'll take it if it increases the joy of my wife. I'll take it if it brings the gospel to my children. And I'll take it if it takes the gospel to the world. I'll take it. Will you? Will you? There is a great attack on marriage. You know? What's your view of marriage? How do you see it? Again, not all their marriages. It's not harp on homosexuality. I know I had to do that, but it was necessary to get to the point. That wasn't the point. This is the point. Heart worship. The point is your marriage. The point is you want to change the culture. Let's change your marriage to the glory of God. You want, you want, you want to see people changed? You want, you, you, want to, you want to infiltrate the community? Then give the world what Christ gave you in vivid form in loving your wives like Christ loved the church. And ladies, follow him wherever he'll go if you'll do that. And take your children with you. They may see the affection that you have for one another that was born out of an affection that Christ had to you. And may all the world know that there, and cannot deny that there is a God in heaven. Let's pray. Father, we love and thank you and praise you for the glory of Christ. We thank you for marriage, Father. It's yours and not ours. But in some sense, you've given it to us for a moment in time. It won't be eternal. We can't cling to it forever. It's something that will fade in glory. How often I think of what a perfect marriage would be in the next age, but I'll never have that opportunity. It'll fade away, but I will have a perfect marriage in some sense as the bride is unified with Christ. Father, I just thank you for the continual blessings upon my life. God, I do not deserve it. I never deserved a wife. I never deserved children. I never deserved a church. Father, I never deserved common grace. Yet you, you continue to be you. And do things that we would never do. And think things that we would never think. Fashion the world like we would never fashion it. I hate to think about what I would have done with marriage, Father, without you. I think what I would I hate to think what I would have done with it now without you. God, would you just give me a um, a new love for it? A new love for you. A desire just to see you honor. A desire just to see the joy in my wife. Father, and I recognize many days, maybe it's not there because. I'm not working. I'm not laboring for it. I'm laboring for myself. Father, God, would you give me a servant's heart? Would you help me to esteem her highly, more highly than myself? Father, would you give me a love for my children? That's just kingdom-minded, gospel-oriented. Father, I know I can't save one of them, but if I could, I'd save them all. So I'm begging you to do it. 
as I can. God, know most days I think I just, just do a horrible job of showing them you. God, would you take my fallible attempts and do holy things with them? God, would you forgive me where I fail? God, would you, God, would you just redeem the things that I've lost? Would you give me a new invigoration, Father, for the things before? Would you help me not, Father, to just um, feel so guilty about how I failed you? But feel excited, Father, just about the grace that's here. God, would you just help me be enamored with your love? I'm just grateful for the love of Christ. Father, would you just help me not to waste the blessings that are ever before me, Father, and to utilize those for kingdom's sake? God, would you help me to go even now and just tear down anything that I thought was special and that would honor you as I worshiped myself? Just start over, Father, from ground zero with your design. Father, it's hard to think all the years I've wasted with my little ones. I've got one that's 12 now. God, would you just give me the rest of them to pursue them in a way that I've never done before? God, would you help me to do the same with the church? It's your bride. It's your institution. It's not mine. can't do with it what I want. Father, would you Forgive me if I've done that in the past. And help me to pursue you in the future. Would you help me to love your bride? Would you help me to esteem her father um, more than I esteem myself? Would you help me to exhaust myself, Father, in the love of Christ for her? God, would you help us to raise up elders and deacons, mature men that will lead and just be example to the little ones here in the flock and to be a lost to a lost and dying world? Father, would you just give us the desires, Father, of your heart? Would you make them ours? God, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Father, would you give us their daily bread and the means by which to accomplish that? Father, would you give us forgiving hearts all along the way, Father, where we would be unified even apart from our differences and offenses? God, would you give us just a contrite spirit to recognize that when we've fallen short, Father, um, that we're probably the culprit and they're not? Would you just give us a heart of, of unity, a heart of grace, a heart of meekness, a heart of love, Father, but also a heart of holiness and righteousness, Lord, such that we're not willing to take anything less than what you desire. But all along the way, Father, as we pursue it, would you just help us to um, you know, just embody and cultivate the spirit, the graces um, of the spirit, Father joy, love, peace, a whole host of other things. God, we love you and thank you and praise you. And just pray, Father, that you'll go with us now. Pray that we've done something, Father, that pleases you and that you'll do eternal things, Father, from our gathering together. Bless this precious bride, Father, on your behalf. In Jesus' name, amen.